Welcome to the Daily Horror Habit Podcast. I'm your host, Jay Krieger, bringing you daily reviews of currently streaming horror movies for your twisted pleasure. Be aware that these reviews may include mild spoilers. And as always, I hope you enjoy. Today I'm joined by a friend of the show, Sam, to review Robin Hardy's 1973 occult horror thriller, The Wicker Man, which is currently streaming on Netflix. How's it going, man? Going great, man. How you doing? Not too bad. I'm uh, I'm excited to have you back on again. We had such a good chat last time, so good to be I'm back. excited to talk about a movie that is completely different than Sinister, which we talked about last time. But uh, <laughs> had you seen The Wicker Man yeah. before? No, I've never seen it before, but I always see these memes with <laughs> Nicolas Cage yeah. in the newer version, like the remake. And like, you know, he's just doing some wild shit. And like you see that literal wicker Mm -hmm. statue in those memes so i was always like what is this and then i just happened to see the movie on netflix the original and i was like i didn't even know this was an original version of that movie the nicholas cage movie so kind of piqued my interest and then it just kind of kept coming up and i was like i gotta i gotta yeah that that was definitely uh nicholas cage kind of memes that spawned from the remake which is uh pretty sure notoriously not very good uh, is putting it in a nice way. Uh, (laughs) But uh, yeah, that's kind of like how I became Mm -hmm. aware of just the Wicker Man movie. But then also it is one of those movies Mm -hmm. that I feel like always gets mentioned in like horror movie retrospectives and just cult horror movies in general. So it's one of those movies I was glad you picked because it's kind of one of those glaring omissions from my watch list um, that serves as the basis and inspiration for a lot of movies. And in finally getting a chance to watch it, mm-hmm. I think that that's very evident from kind of just the opening moments of the movie. It's a blueprint. Yeah, yeah. exactly. It definitely has that blueprint feel to it. Um, and not only just in terms of it being like a horror movie, but I feel like from the opening moments, it, the way it carries itself, you can almost mm-hmm. see little bits of all these other movies that we grew up watching. And just yeah, the influence that this movie had is just super apparent from the jump. Yeah. But for, uh, for people that haven't seen The Wicker Man, uh, it's about a Puritan police sergeant, uh, Sergeant Howie, is sent to the Scottish island village in search of a missing girl who the townsfolk claim never existed. But more immediately alarming are their strange pagan rituals. So had you, this is a little off topic, but had you mm-hmm. seen Midsummer? Yeah. Okay. I think we watched it together, actually. Oh, see, that's how bad my memory is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we watched it together for sure. Okay, so... Not to say that this movie or that Midsummer is overly Wicker Man-esque, but I mm-hmm. feel like I was able to draw a lot of the parallels between the two kind of yeah. just based on the heavy musical and like ritual aspect of the movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there are instances throughout the movie where not only do you have that influence, the ritualistic musical uh uh, aspect of it, but there are like specific things that they do in the movie that mm-hmm. they they do in uh, Midsummer, right? Like that that scene with the kids, the children, and they're like running around that pole and they're holding the whatever it is, like yeah, they're like they're like board. ribbons or something. The ribbons, like isn't that a scene in Midsummer? Like don't they play a game or something like that? Yeah, they, so that's a great example because they have a scene where the girls are dancing around. It's like for the. Uh, I forget what the festival is called, the Mayflower Festival or something like that, yeah. or the Maid Queen. Uh, and mm-hmm. they're like dancing around that. And that was the first thing I thought about. Um, yeah. And Wicker Man more so than Midsummer. I definitely thought I was surprised by how much this movie is basically like a musical. Like yeah. the music, it has such a 
key part of just not only the atmosphere, but it drives mm-hmm. entire scenes in a way that it does feel like a musical. Well, yeah, there was, I mean, that scene that we were just talking about with the ribbons, that was a musical aspect, right? The man was singing. Mm-hmm. That moment with the woman in her room yeah. and the sergeants in the next room. like The landlord's musical, daughter. Yeah, that little sit- musical situation was so weird, but mm-hmm. also like, I really digged it because I almost felt like it fit for whatever reason it fit. Like it didn't seem out of place. Right. You know what I mean? Like she was showing her, I don't know. I don't even know how to explain it, her influence on him. And like, he was going through his motions and like, try not to try not to succumb to like, you know, the woman, the like fertility uh, ritual. Yeah. But it was the way they had her do it. I don't know if that was directed of her to like do certain things, but it Mm -hmm. just felt, like it made sense for the movie and for her character and for where the movie was going. I really like, I love that scene a lot. I'm not saying that because she was like, you know, obviously not wearing clothes, right. but like actually <laughs> what she was doing was like unsettling mm-hmm. and weird. And then like, you also were like, what is that? Well, what is, I, what is... something that I think Wicker Man does really well that a lot of horror movies with cults in it don't do that well is that when you're introduced to one of these new cults or this new culture, it's supposed to be very obviously different to the protagonist's understanding of life and all of these things. But yeah. sometimes I think the presentation early on can be so aggressive that you're immediately like, this is dangerous. This is not right. Whereas mm-hmm. the director is Robin Hardy and the screenwriter is Anthony Schaefer. They do such a good job of making it a confusing uh, way of life, but it's not yeah. necessarily super hostile right from the beginning. You know what I mean? Like, it's very easy into it. Yeah. They ease into it in a way that it, it feels like a misunderstanding of, or a not understanding a certain culture rather than it being inherently mm-hmm. dangerous right from the jump. And you kind of immediately are like how he needs to dip right now. Mm-hmm. And just kind of that different type of uh, way to get into it. I think it really does a good job. Like you said, of just easing you into this world and really exploring it. Well, I love how you say that because there was, there were a bunch of scenes where their little, the literal townspeople are like, what do you mean? Like, of course, this is something like when the women were jumping over and around the fire and they were naked mm-hmm. and he's like, what do you, you think? And the sergeant's like, they're out there, they're naked. Like they're not wearing clothes. And the guy's like, of course they're not wearing clothes. Like you wouldn't want to get, you know, your clothes caught on fire, jumping right. over fire. And like, he's like justifying why they're doing this like really odd thing. They apply logic to something that's very illogical. Yeah, and they just like throughout the movie that's like a theme where like they are like trying to legitimize and like give reason to why these strange things are happening. And like it's like, well maybe it's not as bad as it looks. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah, and I think that something that I really, really like about it from the beginning and what kind of eases us into it, it makes us suspicious, but again, it's not an overt red flag, is that the town it's one of my favorite staples of like cult movies. Uh, cult horror movies in that mm-hmm. the townsfolk are so incredibly unhelpful, but they're unhelpful mm-hmm. with like a smile the entire time. <laughs> Nobody is outright being like, we're not going to help you. You're wrong. This is not how the things are here, but they're kind of just very aloof in the way that they're very calmly aloof. And that like they're the like, teacher. Right? yeah, exactly. That's a like, big, we don't say dead here. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah, exactly. That's a fantastic example because especially in that scene, the cop is, of course, he's terrified because he's this very, like, we find out that religion is very at the core of his character to the point mm-hmm. that 
he won't even sleep with his wife before they get married and all yeah. of these things, which I guess for 1973, that was probably a little more, more normal, more normal. But I mean, yeah. for some, for being 2020 and watching this movie for the first time, <laughs> I was just like, this guy's got a big nerd vibe. I'm sorry. Like, I'm sure he's a great dude and everything, but he's got a nerd vibe. Yeah. Like, let's, you know, let's, let's try a little harder not to, you know, alienate everyone. Alienate everybody. Exactly. Be that guy. That school scene is a really great example because he walks in and he overhears the teacher. I believe she's talking. It's again, everything is about fertility on the island. And we learn that Mm -hmm. the religion, the pagan uh, rituals Mm -hmm. and religion that they're involved in, it all has to do with fertility to the point that we get that we see people dancing naked. We get hear the teacher talking about sex with the kids, which is highly suspect given some of them that's, are way too Yeah, young, I mean, that's, I feel like. yeah, that scene literally comes directly after, like, she's talking about phallus, right? Yeah. And then, like, the kids are touching that part of the that oh, stick. Oh, yeah, yeah, yep. And she's t- describing, you know, mm-hmm. fertility, you know, from the man to a woman in that in that exact moment yeah right and there's even like dick bushes everywhere yeah uh, so <laughs> it, they're definitely very on the nose with it but i just love how the more we understand who howie is mm-hmm. and we learn that like this island is basically his and the entire island is his enemy it stands yeah. for everything that his way of life is against and yeah i think that adversary is really great because again the, the townsfolk he interacts with are purposefully not helpful Mm-hmm. But he can't necessarily say that they're they're evil or that they're trying to stop him. They're just not being right. helpful. Whereas the, right. the culture in general is what he perceives as being overtly evil. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I'm interested to hear kind of like what your perception was of exploring not only just kind of the town itself, but how his character is so at odds with he's basically a fish out of water. So what did you think of some of the scenes like the in scene? where he shows up for the first time. I, you know, i got to be honest, that scene kind of annoyed me because you have on the wall all the pictures of the different mm-hmm. girls who have been sacrificed that we find out later what the actual deal is with that. Um, and obviously there's that one missing picture. Right. You know what I mean? And you're just like, all right, Mr. Detective, like you've done all <laughs> of this work up to this point and like you're not going to really look into like the most obvious reason or the most obvious thing that would be like a clue to where this girl is. Right. Um, and I thought it was funny that, you know, he made such a big deal about the island having this fruit, which again, that becomes a bigger theme throughout, throughout the movie. And like everything he's eating is like canned foods and stuff like that. And automatically it, it, you're just getting this phony sense and he's getting this phony sense from the island. So yeah, there's that aspect to it but i'm like i'm i don't know about you but like i was rooting for him the whole movie even though he was a super religious guy and mm-hmm. even though you're kind of like this guy's a freaking square he's a straight edge yeah i'm still rooting for him because of the way he's going about it mm-hmm. because he's so patient he's right. so patient from the very beginning on with every scene nobody's giving him an inch like my guy can't even get peaches. Like he can't even get real peaches. You know what I mean? Yeah. And like, he's just dealing with it. Obviously like he gets a drink at one point in the movie, but you see that he starts to drink more, the more stressed out he he shows up first. He's like, he doesn't even want anything. He just wants dinner. And then all of a sudden it it gets to the point in the end of the movie where he's like, give me a whiskey or give me a bourbon. He's just like, starts down in shots. Cause he's like, I'm fed up with these fucking hillbillies on the island. 
can't deal with all of that. Yeah. But I'm glad that you brought that up because uh, Sergeant Howie, who's played by Edward Woodward, he really is a character that even though, like you said, he's, I was joking earlier, basically, where he's just very, Mm -hmm. he's very stuck up in all of these things. And it's not necessarily a character that I would necessarily think is that interesting. But Mm -hmm. in terms of becoming invested in him and wanting him, like you said, he doesn't get, he's not given an inch the whole time he's there. He's the Mm -hmm. only policeman, which is a daunting thing to consider that you're like, there's a missing girl on this island of, I don't know, a couple hundred people. We're sending you and only you. Mm -hmm. And And that, sorry to interrupt, but that part also kind of added to this rooting for him thing Mm -hmm. because he, he kept saying like, if I find out that she's dead, and that you're not helping me, like, I'm going to come back here with, like, more more people. And I'm like, should you be saying that? Should you even be telling them that, like, you're going to come back and, like, right. prosecute these people? Like, is that safe for you to do? <laughs> so, yeah, I was thinking the same thing. I was like, it's one of those things where it's like, if you catch on that someone is the murderer or the killer, it's like, you don't say shit until you're ready to take them down. So this idea right. that he's halfway through the investigation and all of a sudden he's like, if you don't do what I tell you to do, I'm going to leave and come back with cops mm-hmm. to arrest you. And they're like, okay, so we just won't let you leave. Like, yeah, exactly. That would be my fear. So I would just like, I'd keep that to myself. And But uh, yeah, I, so again, that his kind of whole persona that originally I wasn't a fan of, I began to appreciate his character more the farther in the investigation we yeah. get because we realize yeah. how the entire film is basically a test for his faith, essentially, oh, and how... God. His yeah. faith in being kind of steadfast in those beliefs and those opinions is so pivotal, not only to his character development, but just the the construct of the film in general. Mm-hmm. But uh, so, I I also brought up the in scene just because I was frankly shocked, given that I haven't watched a lot of seventies movies, but I was shocked to see the amount of sexual content and nudity that was in the movie. Mm-hmm. That's not something I was expecting from a movie set in the seventies. And again, like I haven't seen many movies like that, but did kind of the overt sexual content and the lack of violence surprise you as much as it did me? No, because I feel like, um, it's funny because I was just talking to my roommate the other day about like black exploitation films, mm-hmm. you know, those films that are like set in the seventies and sixties. Yeah. And I, I always feel like the nudity is almost expected in a film like that, especially if it's something that's, supposed to be edgy more edgy because this is like a very edgy topic you mm-hmm. know even for the 70s like kind of going down that like battling religion and and um cult ism if, if that's a thing mm-hmm. so i almost ex- i kind of expected it to be like that i guess i should i expected the nudity to be a thing i guess i should rephrase it it wasn't so much just the just nudity because obviously there's been lots of nudity in movies like that and things of that nature of that time period, but it was more along. I was surprised at kind of just the way that they show nudity and how long uh, the the shots of nudity were, especially <laughs> like in the in the uh, landlord's daughter's dance where like she's dropping it low while, and yeah. the camera is like lingering there for a yeah, while to uh, to the point that I'm pretty sure that actress picking up all the angles yeah exactly they're picking up all the angles and that actress actually um she wanted a body double for part mm-hmm. for part of that scene because she was just like i'm not down with some of the choreography What's on happening? this yeah. but i mean and then you have like the women that are naked on gravestones crying and like straddling gravestones and the dirt and stuff the and OG i was just like was outside also yeah exactly and it's just it's i was shocked at it taking it to a level that you wouldn't expect 
I suppose, or I was not expecting. Like, of course, there's always been films where there's topless women and women without clothes on, but I'm just thinking about a lot of it. in terms of that era and especially when you're basing, you're portraying a religion around fertility and nudity. Like yeah. a lot of the things uh, I didn't pick up on this till like the, the very end of the movie, but the movie itself feels kind of like a progression in terms of censorship and film in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Like I can't think of many movies from that era that were as progressive in terms of just being like, I don't care what they did in the sixties and movies. This is what we're doing in the seventies now. Yeah. Yeah. I think you kind of touched on it. Like it must've been, I would want to see what the movie was originally rated mm -hmm. also. Like maybe, was it really rated? Whatever it's rated now. I believe it was, way, I like believe PC it was 17. rated R. Just because it feels like jump. it would be, it would be an NC-17 right movie to begin with and then like they kind of change it once so this came out in 73 and i don't know if the mpaa had that rating yet i know that they mm -hmm. i'm pretty sure at that point they had pgr and x mm -hmm. but you could i'm not sure if the nudity would consider there was enough nudity in it that it would be an x rating i'm pretty yeah. sure x ratings were for graphic content blood and gore and things like that um but I mean, the rating system was so strange back then that a lot of films kind of fell through the gaps. Mm -hmm. Because it's like, when was when was Clockwork? When was Clockwork? Later, I think that was '86, maybe. My my frame of reference is that the Texas Chainsaw Massacre came out the following year, came out in '74, oh. and there was some blood in that, so they gave that an R rating. Oh, okay. But yeah, they wanted to give it an X rating, I think. Uh, originally but yeah i was surprised too just the lack of violence in the movie mm -hmm. there's only really two instances of violence which is when he knocks out the jester to steal his costume <laughs> which was which hilarious you even call violence exactly <laughs> it's like a scooby-doo yeah like, exactly. legit scooby -Doo, like <laughs> knockout that's exactly what i thought when i saw that i was just like man shaggy's got a mean right like <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but then the only so, other yeah. real thing of violence is, is when he rescues the girl at the at the end of the ritual, and he that whole like, last part of the movie. Yeah, yeah, and there's like three instances. So, I guess I was just surprised that there was so little violence, and yet the movie is so tense as it is. Yeah, and especially the further and further that you realize that this whole society is built around this crazy pagan religion, and, and they're all in on it. It's like, oh my god, right. they literally are all in on it. Yeah. And th those are the most terrifying kind of cult movies. It's not like a compound. It's an entire mm -hmm. island of people that no matter who you talk to, whether it's men, women, or children, they're all indoctrinated yeah. in this in some way. Yeah. That, that gives you that eerie. And that's, I suspected that in the beginning, yeah. just because of how those old men were when he was initially at, it's like showing them the, showing them the picture mm -hmm. of the girl. And they were like, oh, never seen it. I'm like, yeah, well, okay. Now we, I kind of feel like... Kind of feel like you have, but yeah. <laughs> I really do love how they just make him be such a fish out of water, especially like mm -hmm. when he walks into that inn for the first time and everybody stops immediately. Yeah. It's kind of one of those things where again, like you're never allowed to forget that Howie and also the viewer is an alien essentially. And mm -hmm. I think that he does Hardy does just such a good job of conveying that and of making, even though we're able to watch this in 2020 and we don't necessarily have the same background or the same frame of 
just like the religious background and whatnot, you and me specifically, yeah. in terms of going to an island like that, it's still very uncomfortable, even if we don't find what they're doing like as overtly offensive as Sergeant Howie does, which I think is a testament to just the kind of world building. But uh, I can't believe we've gone this long without mentioning our boy Christopher Lee, Lord, I know, I Lord Summer, Summer Isle. I, mean, I was just about to say that. This is a wild performance. What did you think of him as the, uh, the patriarch of the island? Well, first of all, it was weird and cool to see him like that mm -hmm. because we know him most notable for me at least most notably from like star wars you know what i mean like lord or, of the rings or well lord of the rings yeah. right but he's in oh, star yeah, wars as right. well he plays count dooku yeah, yeah so like he always but he always plays this like very stern powerful and he's still very stern powerful but like he's like singing songs he's not and, so like, refined and elegant like you no, said in the in star wars or even in lord of the rings he he is the over the not over the top, but he's just very sinister. And mm -hmm. you he, you just know that he's a bad guy from looking at him. Whereas yeah. I think it, again, it plays into this idea that perhaps Sergeant Howie is misperceiving this culture because everybody else yeah. is so relaxed about it. And especially when he goes to his mansion and he meets uh, Lord Summer and he's so elegant, he's very articulate. He's not yeah. this kind of like scruffy, crusty old guy that's a hermit basically. He's He's like a giving he's this, like a real lord, giving him this like beautiful tour, explaining the land, giving him history about his you know forefathers and grandfather, and like yes, yeah, so, so it was a weird, interesting setting that he was in. It just was weird to see him like that, right. but it was crazy because he slowly starts to unravel with the story as as time goes on, and you yeah. kind of just see who he really is. <laughs> he becomes more and more hyped up for the uh, for the big celebration at the yeah. end. Yeah. Yeah. But I was surprised to learn. Well, first off, they apparently wrote the role with him in mind, which I think is always telling of the best performances that people give. Mm -hmm. uh, I just rewatched The Invitation and I learned that one of the characters in that the role was written for them. And he's one of the best characters in the movie, I think, like that actor in mind. But uh, also, he Christopher Lee said that apparently he wasn't paid for the film. It was one of those things where like he, wanted, he wanted to make it so badly and they had such a limited budget that he was like, fuck it, I'll, I'll show up for free, which is a bold move because, yeah, the movie's great and it, it defined his career, basically. But mm -hmm. if that doesn't pay off, that's, yeah. a, that's hard to go back home and tell people, yeah, I just spent three months filming a movie, didn't get paid and it's garbage. Yeah. Well, as we, as we say, that's like um, he's, he's a true thespian because he wants to... He wants to show off the art, his yeah. you know, and his his craft because it's totally like a true acting. Yeah, actor one on one is like his evolution of his character from elegant to like just literally like slobbering mad at the end of that at the end of the movie. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> I do love too how even though his relate again like you had mentioned, even though his relationship and conversations with Sergeant Howie for the majority of the film are very at odds with one another and they become more and more tense, especially when Sergeant Howie digs up the little girl's grave and there's yeah. just a rabbit in it. And he He's shows laughing. up for stars. He like, throws the fucking dead rabbit at Lord uh, Summer Isle and his girl. Yeah. And then he's like demanding know where she is. And the guy's wife or girlfriend is just like, well, she wanted to be a rabbit in the after, like she's saying this insane shit 
But then mm-hmm. Christopher Lee's character is still so matter of fact about everything. And yeah. that to me is actually terrifying. This idea that somebody can say these insane things at you and yet they're so cool and calm and reserved about mm-hmm. it. And it's like, well, it's you normal don't normal date walk, day, uh, walk in the park for them. It's yeah, nothing. exactly. There's nothing I haven't done. I haven't admitted to anything and you don't have proof that I've done anything. And yet I'm still going to push this insane rhetoric onto you and there's nothing you can do yeah. about it. It's, it's just what we do. It's, it's how we are on the islands, you know? Yeah. Like, all right. I think uh, yeah. in getting into kind of like the celebration aspect at the end of the movie, that mm-hmm. is where I see a lot of the comparisons between Midsummer and this. Again, not to bring it back too much to Midsummer, but when people try to compare this movie to Midsummer, I would say Midsummer definitely was able to look at a lot of the imagery from the yeah. May Day celebration in The Wicker Man. And applying it to Midsummer in a way that you can definitely see the DNA of it all over Midsummer. Like, and it's like things I'm just even just realizing right now that I'll mention in a minute, but it's like just in terms of the environment, right? The people, Mm -hmm. the people on the island and the people in the woods town Midsummer. I don't know if it was a town or what they were really. It was like like a a campground or like a site, campsite. Like knowing that everybody is in on this thing and then like when you're an outsider you're just kind of spectating Mm -hmm. like that feeling you know you get that feeling in midsummer and you definitely get that feeling in 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 wicker man yeah and just how things progressed slowly like you don't there's no real reveal like even when you think you know what is about to happen or you think you know how the movie is uh is going to shape out Mm -hmm. it just doesn't until it does until it's happening you know what i mean like you don't know until it's happened well this film in general something that i really was reflecting on in writing up my notes for after watching it was just how well the movie is paced it's not it's not even a long movie but just in terms of the way that they're able to establish the island and the characters and sergeant howie and then how the movie transitions between the investigation phase and Mm -hmm. then he's impersonating somebody in this fucked up kind of sun scorched weird weird festival and just the way that the movie so effortlessly transitions from just very like strange and then alarming and then completely Mm -hmm. deranged like it really doesn't miss a beat and the the whole mayday celebration really kicks off when he tries to get into his plane boat and then those guys are in the background they kind of pop up behind the fence and they're all have animal masks on and yeah. I just love that scene because he never sees those people right. and they don't have to, they're not like hooting and hollering and trying to scare them or anything. It's just this idea that the island has you. And even if you don't realize it, you can't escape. That's it. Yeah, that's it. And I, I really like that. I like the whole celebration again, seeing Christopher mm-hmm. <laughs> wearing, you know, he was wearing the, the, he had the wig and the, the dress and like you know he's he literally is running the crowd like yeah there's that moment when like he makes an announcement and like he literally just like puts his hands to the side and like tells the band to stop mm-hmm. but the whole time you're watching the sergeant and he's like trying to figure out <laughs> where things are going and like you said the pacing is cool because i love how they're walking it's like you walking to the doom he's walking to his doom you can feel it and then they get to that one place that's like the um i forget what the the rocks are called what is the formation of rocks what are those called like stonehenge basically. stonehenge exactly yeah. it's like that right mm-hmm. and then they have that ritual where they have the knives and like it's almost like that's the first reveal like you think oh she's about to go off right here right and it starts to build up and then you realize like 
it's not really what you think. So you still don't know if if we're gonna see the reveal, like the big reveal, and figure out that this island is as sinister as you think it is. Well, and then just kind of builds up from there, and it just gets worse. You know, I, like you said, I love the pacing, and it doesn't waste any time. It gets to every point it needs to get to. Yeah, that game of chop again is a moment that's really pivotal and and still kind of confusing or challenging the viewer's perception of the entire film, really, because you mm-hmm. have that moment where they're walking through the swords. And then when the yeah. music stops, the guys that are holding the swords basically make a, it's a makeshift guillotine with the swords. So they decapit, they're supposed to decapitate somebody. And when the person's, the top of their costume comes off, you assume they just got decapitated. But then you see the kid, little kid's head pop out of it. And it's like, is this actually as sinister as we assume it is? Or again, is this kind of just a tradition that we're not familiar with and we don't understand? Right. So we're just kind of perceiving our misunderstanding as being sinister when mm-hmm. this is just a culture. Maybe this is just a culture we don't understand. And yeah. the music itself is not even sinister. Again, no. like this idea that this movie is, I mean, they even said, everybody involved said when they were making it, they didn't think they were making a horror movie. They thought they were mm-hmm. making a musical in terms of just the way that everything is so musically oriented. And yeah. It is very upbeat and lively and joyful, and it's not this kind of sinister, downtrodden music that you would expect in a lot of kind of like overbearing cult movies. Mm-hmm. But yeah. that, that entire kind of just celebration in general, I want to remember what the name of the uh, composer was. Oh, Paul Giovanni, who somehow had never scored a feature film. Like, <laughs> could you imagine you never scored a feature film and it's this in, uh, kind of just it's such a part of tied into the identity of the wicker man. And mm-hmm. again, this is one of those movies that if it didn't have this soundtrack, if you kind of watched this without music, it would be atrocious. Yeah. <laughs> or it, it would be, it wouldn't have the same vibe to anything as it does. You wouldn't be able to get through it. You'd right. be like, what am I watching? What is, what is it? any yeah. of this have to do with anything? And why are they just, like, why are they just standing there? Well, imagine if you watched the fertility scene and it didn't have that music playing in the background, it would just, mm-hmm. it wouldn't have the same, you would view it as being just overtly sexual for the point of being overtly sexual. Whereas like you had said, when we watched it, it's very much, it's like a dance almost. And obviously yeah. it is a dance, but it feels like it's a ritual because of the way she's moving, but also mm-hmm. the music that it's, it's fantastical, the music. Yeah. And it's kind of just, you can feel that there's a deeper meaning to it than mm-hmm two people that just want to bang really badly. You right. know what I mean? Like there's a deeper meaning to it through the music. There, Yeah, there is. And again, it's on top of the music, you they're reinforcing that this is normal and like, this is okay. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it, it, it's okay. Everything that's happening is supposed to happen. And like, like we got it under control. You don't need to worry, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But in terms of uh, some of our favorite moments, What's a moment of this film that really stood out to you? Um, a moment, <laughs> a moment that really stood out to me was probably, you know, it's weird. The very beginning, there's a couple of moments. The very beginning, we got that, and I can't remember what movie we originally had talked about, but we had that shot, the location, you know, and it's just the overhead shaky overhead shot of the island right in the very beginning of the movie when he's flying right very beginning he's flying and like the cinematography and you see the island or islands that he's flying over mm-hmm. 
I always think about that when I see movies from that time because again, it's like you just get that like really shaky like helicopter shot. They didn't have like stabilizers and shit right. like that. <laughs> so, like, they, that would be like still. <clears throat> excuse me. It's still a very cool shot, and I love when they establish kind of where you are. You get to see the bird's eye of the setting that you're in, and then like you're slowly kind of going down into where you actually are. It get, it, it it helps round out the story for me and, and the location. And the yeah, that, setting. I mean, I love the opening of the movie not ju- not because of the way that it's filmed necessarily, but because of how it drops us. There's such a sense of immediacy mm-hmm. in the sense that this cop has to go to this island because he's received a letter that says this girl is missing, and we're dropped right into his shoes essentially. We don't know anything about him. We don't know anything about his history. We don't know anything about the island. So we ourselves are very much a fish out of water in that mm-hmm. we're just dropped into this world. And actually, this is one of the movies, one of those movies that was edited to death, basically. And so there's a bunch, there's like three different versions of this. There was a version that the film begins with him on the mainland. And it's him in a police station getting the letter and getting the assignment. Mm-hmm. And in doing that, if they had included that scene it would feel more procedural than it is. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like in the f- fact that we're dropped into this world like a fish out of water, you can feel that there's a sense of a mystery and we're unraveling that mystery without yeah. being told necessarily. Whereas yeah. if we got a 10 minute scene of him at a desk and his boss comes up and he's like, you got to investigate this and that and this, and it just, it, it's going to change how you feel about his character and how you view him through the movie. Yeah, exactly. It's not nearly as organic as, hey, this is the guy. Clearly, he's the protagonist because we're in this plane with him and we're dropped yeah. into a world we don't understand. Yeah. So that was a, that, that was a part that I liked. The, another part that really stuck with me was when he's in the classroom and the girl has a frog on a on a stick. He's connected to a... a oh, a beetle, right? Is a, it a frog or, or a it was, Maybe it was a beetle. It, Maybe it was a beetle. Mm-hmm. And she says, like, you know, it walks around until it can't. Yeah. And that was, like, one of the first, I feel like, signs that something isn't right. Like, there is a sinister aspect because the girl is basically saying the beetle's like, going to hang, hang itself, essentially. Mm-hmm. That's what's going to happen. And, like, even he's like, are you mad? You know, like, he's yeah. just, like, can't believe. Mm-hmm. I think he says that a bunch. Like, are you mad? Like, he just is, like, cannot believe what he's seeing. But, like... That kind of was the first sign for me that like, okay, this is, there's nothing normal about it. Right. This. No matter what they say, like, you got to remember, no, this is fucked up. For me, for me, that I had that same reaction to that scene when he goes to Rowan Morrison's grave and there's a piece of her. I don't know. I think it was supposed to be like a Ooh. strip of skin or something. It was, it was. I think it was like like her like part of her inside, like her um, uterus or something, oh, right? Jesus because Christ. he was saying like it's like her, something about fertility and like her, something inside of her. Oh Christ! But yeah, that yeah. Anyway, seeing a part of her flesh hanging from that, I was just like, yeah, this is a little more sinister. Like I'm pretty sure that there's some shit going on. They that should definitely not be the case. Yeah, and then like the guy's creepy ass smile oh, when he yeah. was like explaining, he's like, "Of course, like, what do you mean? Like, what? they need this for the afterlife." And you're like, "What, dude?" <laughs> Again, I love how all. I mean, that's I don't no idea who that actor is or if he ever went on to do anything else. But the movie has so many pivotal characters like that guy that mm-hmm. it's such a wide range of roles in terms of like the their supposed occupation on the island. Like that guy's the groundskeeper. He goes to the records office. He goes to the candy store. Or the post office there. Everybody has that same demeanor in that you don't, you're the one that's weird. We're not the ones that are weird. What we're doing here is completely normal. 
you're the one that is weird for not understanding why we do these things. Yeah. And that kind of just, again, it really reinforces the idea that not only is this character a fish out of water, but the viewer is too. And it does make you start to question at one point or another. I mean, when they start burning people alive and whatnot, that's mm-hmm. when you're kind of like, yeah, okay, I, I fucked up. But before that, there's definitely one or two moments throughout the film where I'm like, am I the one that's misinterpreting or attributing yeah. feelings to things that I shouldn't be? Like, am I the and weird here's, one? And here's something that goes along with this that I want to know is you notice that in the very beginning they have, they like, right, they um had like a credit, credit the island, they credited the island for like help, like their hospitality and like mm-hmm. bringing them into their religion. Yeah. And I was almost like, is that a real thing or are they just trying to already sway us to kind of feel a certain way, like to come in with a feeling like, you know, these people are great. And like, this is just a nice setting. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, right. I think think some of the extras were just people who lived on the Island. Yeah. I'm pretty sure. Gotta be, gotta be. But um, yeah, you just get that feeling. That's, those are two things I like, obviously the ending. I mean, I figured we'd talk about the ending. That's its own, yeah. That's its own beast. Yeah. But that was another. The, the ending was another part that I liked a lot. Um, yeah. Let's just get into it. I mean, that's the yeah. biggest set piece of the movie, basically. And mm-hmm. for a movie that doesn't feature features almost no violence, it mm-hmm. and it kind of makes that scene something that I mean, when you look back at older movies, like it's not. You've seen things that are far more technical and gruesome and gory, but. I don't know about you, but in the context of the movie and especially seeing his reaction to being burned alive, I mean, it's kind of, it carries a lot more weight than I expected it to. Very alarming. Yeah. Very alarming. From the moment that we figure out that he, he's being set up. Yeah. I'm just like, oh shit. Which I loved. I love that twist. I love twists where the hunter is actually the hunted. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what it was. The hunter was the hunted. And like, even the fact that the girl was in on it and like, they're all like, don't you understand? You are the person. Right. You are the person we need, like a virgin male. I'm like, oh, well, I bet you wish you, yeah. <laughs> I bet you wish you hooked up with your wife yeah. before you married her. Or the landlord's daughter. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, I don't I'm know. Just, I mean, I don't know where. I love the contrast between all of the villagers that are having these uh, continual joyous songs about everything. And yet he's praying to God and he's begging God for forgiveness. And as somebody that has presented themselves as a man of God and led their, their life by being devoted to as a man of God, you see him lose his faith during the course, almost of that scene where even though he's still praying to God, you just see how he realizes like I'm fucked and nobody is coming to save me. Yeah. And I, I, also felt like like you said he was losing his faith and he was just like holding on to it for dear life but there was like the moment we almost felt like he was gonna get control of the situation because like right the whole movie he's trying to just get control and he has none yeah and then there's a one moment where he's like explaining where he's like well what if i die and your crops still don't work then they're gonna have to kill you right <laughs> it's almost like for a second, even when they zoomed in on, on Christopher's face, you think, you see him thinking about it and he's registering and he's like, oh shit, for a second. Mm-hmm. But then he finally comes up with his retort. But it was like, there was a moment where he like, there was like a little bit of faith that like maybe he's going to get out of it. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, no, it's not going to happen. And then obviously 
<laughs> he gets carried yeah. by the big guy. It's always that one big guy. Right. Always the big, the, the island guy who was like, you know, seven foot five. He got casted because he's big as fuck and he can carry heavy as fuck things. Yeah. But, but uh, I, it was I, very I, alarming. I love the set piece so much in that it was obviously practical. Like I at first assumed it was a miniature just because of obviously like the uh, size and scale of it. it was. But yeah. I watched the making of and they actually built one of those and it was something where they had to time the shot perfectly, especially when the camera cuts to him staring at the sunset and it's on fire, obviously, but they only had one shot. shot. They only had one shot at that. And it's like, if you're burning that thing, what are you going to build another one? All of a sudden? No, they couldn't even that pay was, Christopher Lee. They're not going to pay for another right. wicker man. That was like the perfect, that shot with the sunset at the very end. You're like, Oh, they, they did that. Like they killed yeah. it because you know, the head falls down and then you just get the sun. Like, and it's like, at like the perfect color, you know? So, so I saw in a research photo that they used because they got the wicker man imagery from some ancient pagan civilization where they would fill it with livestock. But there was one where there was a rendition where instead of livestock, all of those little compartments were filled with people and they would sacrifice. Like there was the arms were filled with people. The legs were filled with people. It was just, it was like a nightmare drawing basically. But it made me think that had they ever made another remake of this movie, I would want to get a director that would apply the same level of care to making it be like a be very anti-traditional horror movie for three fourths and then just get aggressive as fuck in that at that ending for the last 10 minutes because I don't know. I mean, had Ari Aster not made Midsommar, I feel like he would make something like that where it's this idea. It's all about the characters until the last 10 minutes where it's kind of just like hell on earth, like he did with Hereditary. Um, and it's, to, to add to that, it's like, I only just kind of put two and two together that like the end is the same, right? In Midsommar, yeah. there's livestock, mm-hmm. they're, in a, they're in this thing and it, it gets burned down yeah. and they die. So it's very much, it's like almost the same ending, just two different, you know. Yeah, they're very, they're very similar. And again, I think in finally getting to watch the original Wicker Man, mm-hmm. I can see the imprint on a, tons yeah. of different horror movies that I've seen. And even if it's different horror movies that don't have anything to do with cults at yeah. the same time, it kind of just speaks to Robin Hardy's craftsmanship in the way that he filmed this. And of course, Anthony Schaefer's uh, script, but I was interested to learn uh, about the lineage of this movie in terms of, mm-hmm. cause Robin Hardy, I'm almost certain only directed this in one other movie. Only. Yeah. A few other things. Yeah. And the other movie that he directed was a spiritual sequel to the wicker man. Oh, the wicker tree. Yeah. The wicker tree, which yeah. actually had a, uh, a Christopher Lee cameo in it, but the movie was not supposed to be very good. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, <laughs> it's, I mean, it's just a very, very, for me, interesting idea that somebody could make a movie as pivotal as the wicker man. Mm-hmm. And then not, especially that movie didn't come out until 2011. Right. So it's like he didn't return to film for what almost 40 years, 30 plus years, and then just isn't able to kind of like recapture. Obviously, this is why people say like you should not be making sequels to a lot of horror movies, but no, it's just yeah. so interesting to me that this is such a remarkable film in the impact it had on the genre as a whole, but then it got two underwhelming sequels one, yeah, ofi- one I mean- official, one unofficial. 
you know, they say like the, it's like a lightning in the bottle situation, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And you can't wait. I just, I just don't see how you can wait for 30, 40 years and try to do a sequel and even get close to what you had at that point. Cause he, you know, he's, he was a different person then, you know yeah. what I mean? Absolutely. Everybody was different. Movie making was different. So well, yeah, it's the, Anthony Schaefer, the screenwriter, he, in, uh, eight, in 1989, he even wrote a treatment for a sequel. Um, but the problem was, big problem was, is that it was six, it was, how long was it? It was, yeah, 16 years later from the original film. Mm -hmm. And they wanted to pick it up right at the end of the Wicker Man. This idea that uh, Sergeant Howie survives and the cops come and free him on the island. Oh and God. then he's chasing Christopher Lee around the island and there's a dragon and all this shit. And I love that I had read this super outlandish kind of plot summary for his idea <laughs> of a sequel. And they were like, well, the actor that played How uh, Sergeant Howie was too old, so it wouldn't have been realistic. And it was like, you just have a motherfucker fighting dragons and stuff. And yeah. like, <laughs> I don't think the age difference was the problem. Like, I think there was a few other. It's the least of your worries. Yeah. But uh, they actually made that into a radio play. I think this, I think last year or this year, they found really? that treatment that he wrote and they made it into a radio play. So. I think I might go back and listen. I might go back and listen to it because it's only an it hour. Might be worth a listen. Yeah, I'll do it. It's weird because a part of me really wants to watch the Nick Cage version. Like you know, I'm this. I'm definitely interested, and it's one just of the. See. Yeah, yeah, I want to see just what that would even look like, and to have yeah. the balls to be like, "Hey, I'm going to remake The Wicker Man," which is it. Ha this movie has to be on like the top hundred horror movies ever made kind of lists. You know what I mean? It has that lineage. We, uh, we, we might have to do that one night. We might have to do a, uh, if I have you back on, we might have to, or I plan on having you back on in the future yeah. when you're free. I mean, I didn't mean to make that sound so sinister. Um, <laughs> maybe doing a commentary or something on that. Cause yeah. I don't know, man, from the trailer I've seen and the clips I've seen, Nick Cage, Nick Cage certainly gives a performance. Well, it's sad because I was expecting the scene with the bees and we didn't get the scene with the bees. And I was like, oh, what about the bees? But then I'm realizing like, oh, they had to, they added that caveat because they wanted to like just do as much as they could. Yeah. And, and, I, and I think that reveal. that was the main difference between the original film and the remake was that they swapped out the peaches and the livestock for honey. Basically, which I mean. Maybe they should have tried. Maybe they should have tried to like change a little more because of how that turned <laughs> out. But um, yeah, this was a really great movie to pick. Were there any other moments that you wanted to highlight that I kind of blew past? Not really. I think just the feeling of him on the on the uh, plane, him being stuck, him having to use the megaphone like that. That whole situation was made me nervous every time because it was like are they gonna actually come get him you know what i yeah. mean Remember when he first got there they weren't even gonna let him on the island mm -hmm. they were like you can't be here so things like that but i think you pretty much covered it all i mean the setting is he's in and in and he's outside you know what i mean he's right. in and in and he's walking he's in and in and he's you know yeah i mean to that point it is a super simplistic movie if you had to describe it to somebody and yeah. for all intents and purposes the wicker man burning is the biggest set piece and the most probably technically impressive set piece. But at the same time, I feel like just the way that director Robin Hardy was able to construct the island, which is very mm -hmm. normal seeming to make it yeah. seem so foreign, just kind of with little mo little image uh, pieces of imagery. Like there's the eye symbol and crest and there's all these kind of 
strange, uh, like you said, when he sees the kids dancing around that pole with the different uh, ribbons and things mm-hmm. like that, he's able to kind of inject weirdness into each scene in a way that you can't not notice it. But at the same time, it's not, again, kind of just overtly sinister or overtly deadly just by looking at it. But yeah, this was a fantastic movie for you to pick. Um, I really enjoyed chatting with you about The Wicker Man. Same with you, man. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Daily Horror Habit on your preferred streaming service and follow at Daily Horror Habit on Instagram and at Daily Horror Pod on Twitter.